the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. All right, let's synchronize our watches. It is uh, a minute before 3 o'clock on Thursday afternoon, Southern California Live on KKLA and KPRZ. KPRZ, I'm Bob Lapine in with you this afternoon. And and if you've lived in California for any length of time, you know the the old joke that there are four seasons in California, right? Earthquake, flyer, fire, flood, and drought. I mean, we've, we, we've heard that for years, that... That's life in California. Those are the seasons that you can expect. And certainly over the last 10 years, we've at least heard more about fires and droughts and floods and maybe not so much with earthquakes. But as you know, what we're hearing today is that we are facing what is described as an existential crisis. Now, let's just break that down. Existential crisis means that our very existence as human beings on this planet is threatened. And that's because we are told of climate change. Over the last two weeks, world leaders have been meeting in Glasgow to discuss what is the, the response, the appropriate response from governments to the issue of greenhouse gases, the issue of climate change, what's going on in our world, how can we stop this, how can we, how can we keep the planet from being destroyed. I don't know if you saw this, but recently a, a poll of young people Almost half of America's young people, I don't know how they define young people, young Americans believe humanity is doomed because of climate change. This was in the Washington Post. So what are we to think? What is, how do we understand this? How do we think biblically about this? What's true and I, I know there are dissenting voices, but it sure seems like the orchestra is tuned and all of the instruments are playing together. And if you're not playing along with the, the orchestra, you're kicked out of the symphony. So I want to talk about climate change. And to do that, I went back and I, I remembered a conversation I had back in 1988. I was hosting a, a radio program in Texas, and there was a new book that had come out called Prosperity and Poverty, The Compassionate Use of Resources in a World of Scarcity by Dr. Calvin Beisner. And I I remember the conversation that we had when I interviewed him on that book, and I thought, if we're going to talk about what we're facing with climate change in our world, there there's no better person I know of to talk to than Dr. Beisner. He has, for more than 30 years now, been studying, exploring, considering all of this. Dr. Beisner is is a uh, he's a scholar, 
Uh, he has his Ph.D. from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and for uh, for years now has given leadership to the Cornwall Alliance, and I'm going to have him tell us about that. He's the author of a number of books. The one I mentioned uh, is just one of many, and uh, he agreed to join us, and I'm glad to have him on the program today. So after a, a, a more than 30-year hiatus, Dr. Beisner, nice to uh, reconnect with you today here on Southern California Live. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's great to reconnect. <laughs> Tell listeners about the Cornwall Alliance. Will you do that? Sure. Uh, the quick way to put it is what my wife made up. She tells people we're trying to save the planet from the people who are trying to save the planet. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the little more formal way to put it is that we are uh, an evangelical Christian think tank with about 70 scholars involved. Um, roughly a third of them are natural scientists, including, so far as today's topic is so relevant, some of the world's top climate scientists. Uh, roughly a third are economists, specializing most of them in either uh, environmental economics or developmental economics, how societies grow out of poverty. And roughly the other third, is theologians, philosophers, ethicists, and, and uh, uh, religious leaders. And we work to educate the public and policymakers on three things simultaneously and intertwined. The first one is what we call biblical earth stewardship. We prefer that term to environmentalism because environmentalism has not a pretty bad baggage packed with it. Uh, the second is economic development for the very poor around the world, one of the things that lift and keep whole societies out of poverty. And the third, and the most important, the one that ties all of this together, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, together with the biblical worldview, theology, and ethics that come along with that. So uh, we, we try to educate on all of these things. We have a big website at cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org. We have a Facebook page. We have a YouTube channel, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And uh, we, we publish a, a newsletter, an email newsletter that comes out two or three times a week, always educational. People can uh, subscribe to that at cornwallalliance.org. And you are, you're, you're privately funded? You're funded by corporate or, or just by people who pitch in to make all of this happen? We are funded by donations from private individuals. We are a 501c3 uh, nonprofit organization. Uh, we don't get funding from big oil. I wish we did. <laughs> we don't get any funding, uh, you know, from any big fossil fuel companies or anything like that. Uh, uh, our funding comes from private individuals, and our budget is a tiny, tiny fraction of the budget of the major uh, environmental uh, green activist organizations around the world. Uh, so it's kind of a David and Goliath situation, which we like because that reminds us that we have to trust in the Lord and not in riches. <laughs> Tell us your origin story, because your passion for these subjects is tied to where you grew up, right? Well, yes, it is. It could be a very long story, but I'll try to keep it real short. 
when I was just a toddler, my father was uh, assigned by the U.S. State Department to uh, work in Calcutta, India. And shortly after that, after we moved there, my mother was paralyzed by who knows what. And so I was farmed out to a, an Indian family. And uh, every morning, my ayah, or nurse, would arrive at our apartment and take me by the hand, and we'd walk down through the apartment uh, uh, courtyard. And I still have picture memories from that of this magnificent, beautiful, big green tree with a vine hanging out of it with big red flowers all over it. Now, of course, big was to a toddler. I'm not sure how big it really was, but it was very, very beautiful. And many years later, uh, well, many, about uh, about 13 years later when I became a Christian and then began to study the Bible and find out about the wonders of God's creation, those picture memories came back to me as uh, as a reminder of the beauty of God's creation. But after we stepped out of the courtyard, we walked a number of blocks to my uh, my daytime home with the Indian family, and all along the way, I stepped over the bodies of people who had died overnight of starvation and disease. And those picture memories have been firmly planted in my mind ever since, too. And there, too, after I became a Christian, after I uh, began studying a lot in the Scriptures about uh, the fact that Jesus, uh, when, when he announced the beginning of his public ministry, the Spirit of the, of the Lord is upon me, and, and because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Uh, now, the most important good news is to every sinner that we can be reconciled to the Holy God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because he's paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. But good news is supposed to come to the poor, too. And what I realized was that by giving me those, those experiences as a child, God had given me motivation to seek to use a great deal of my life for the purpose of pursuing both the stewardship of that beautiful creation that he gave and the, 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 the discovery of the things that are absolutely indispensable to whole societies rising and staying out of poverty. And that's what eventually led to my founding the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation 16 years ago. And and there is a connection, we should say, between um, earth stewardship and poverty and and economics. And and this is this is sometimes neglected. Where where what we read in the newspaper today is is just that um, again, as I said, we've got an existential crisis and we need to do whatever we can to save the planet. Yeah. And yet nobody's calculating what that's going to do to humanity in the process. Right. And the, the really sad thing is that pretty much everything that's being, uh, being touted to counter, uh, global warming, man-made global warming, pretty much everything that's being touted to counter that is something that will slow, stop, or reverse economic development, uh, trapping billions of people in poverty. There are uh, somewhere around about a billion, billion and a half people in the world right now who have no electricity, for example. 
that condemns them to not having light by which to study and learn at night. Uh, no, no pumped water into their homes. Uh, no electric heat or air conditioning or anything like that. It's a, it's a, a horrible way to try to live. I mean, just you know, think about how any of us here in America get up tight when we have, say, a 15 or 20 minute blackout or three or four hours. Well, imagine no electricity at all in life. But the real connection between biblical earth stewardship and overcoming poverty is this. A clean, healthful, beautiful environment is a costly good. And like any other costly good, wealthier people can afford more of it than poorer people can. That's why you don't find the dirtiest parts of a city in the richest areas. You find it in the poorest areas. Uh, this is this is you know a pretty basic understanding, and here's what economic and environmental history together tell us: the wealthier an economy becomes, the wealthier a society becomes, the cleaner and healthier and more beautiful its environment will be. Pollution emissions uh, fall as societies get wealthier, because they can afford the technologies necessary to uh, generate energy, to uh, make uh, food, clothing, shelter, uh, education, health care, transportation, communication, all of that stuff. Uh, we can afford the kinds of technology that do those things cleanly with low pollution emissions. Uh, in very early stages of economic development, in real poverty, you can't afford that technology. But you still need to do the development because the benefits of that early economic growth far outweigh the risks from the pollution that comes with it. And we know that from very simple, hard, historical data. At the very same time that those emissions rise in early development, health and life expectancy rise, too. That means the benefits of the early industrialization outweigh the risks that come with them. I have so much I want to talk with you about and, and such a limited time. I'm I'm just going to dive in. I want to set that, that foundation so listeners understand where we're coming from as we have this conversation. But let's just start by acknowledging the fact that the views you represent are shall we say, out of step with the mainstream? I mean, you you are a minority voice within, in a culture that is basically um, not allowing minority voices to be heard very often. Um, you would be considered uh, a climate denier and, would, and, and your science would be dismissed. So I'm not misstating the facts, am I? This is how the, the client, clim, climate scientists in the world would would simply dismiss you and the other scholars. Well, I, I think that's how a lot of environmental activists would dismiss us. And some of those environmentalists, uh, environmental activists are also climate scientists. But I think there are a lot of misperceptions about climate science and climate scientists. They all start with the, the constant refrain, well, 97% of all scientists agree Global warming is real, and it's man-made, and it's, it's uh, catastrophically dangerous. 
Well, that claim is based on several different uh, studies that were badly flawed. The most famous one is by a John Cook of, of uh, oh, an Australian university. And uh, it turns out that the data for that were very, very badly mishandled. And but, but but even if you give him all of his claims about the data, the only things that actually turn out to be affirmed by those 97% are that global warming is real and that human activity contributed significantly to it. That's all. Nothing about dangerous, nothing about human activity being the primary driver, nothing about catastrophic, Certainly nothing about the need to spend trillions and trillions of dollars trying to mitigate it, trying to reduce that warming. Uh, so first off, the consensus, the consensus claim is not supported by good data. Second, the consensus isn't what they claim it is. Third, consensus isn't even a scientific value. It's a political value. You don't figure out how much warming comes from added CO2 in the atmosphere by counting noses. You do it by doing really, really difficult physics and really, really difficult measurement of a variety of different things all around the globe over a long period of time. Uh, you, you figure out who won an election by counting noses. Right. That's politics. Consensus is not, uh, is not science, and science is not consensus. So, so that's, is, that's sort of the beginning. And besides that, I have no idea what it would mean to be a climate denier. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we at the Cornwall Alliance, we affirm that global average temperature has risen by probably around about 1 to 1.2 degrees Celsius over the last 130 years or so. We affirm that human activity has almost certainly contributed to that, maybe more than half of that. We have no problem with that. Our problem is, is with the claim that it's catastrophic and that we ought to be spending trillions of dollars to curb it. And here's part of why. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is kind of the, you know, that is the high priest of climate science uh, for, for those in the alarmist camp. In its uh, assessment reports that come out every five, six, seven years, in those reports, including the one just recently released this, this August, they say that according to their worst-case scenario for global warming, at the end of this century, the poorest nations in the world today will have average income per capita 70 times what it is today. That will put them on an economic balance about equivalent to where Americans are today. And Americans, meanwhile, will be several times wealthier than they are now. Now, the fact is that poverty is a far greater risk than anything related to climate or weather. With income equivalent to the bottom 5% of Americans, you can thrive in any, um, any ecosystem, any climate from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara Desert to the Brazilian rainforest. If you're living on the equivalent of a couple dollars a day, extreme poverty, according to the UN, you can't thrive in the best tropical paradise. And so if we really want to see people better off, we want to see uh, 
economic development continuing, and we don't want to see efforts to slow global warming getting in the way of that. You're talking, you know, to people who have been watching forest fires burn out of control across the state Mm -hmm. here in California, drought conditions, dramatic drought conditions, and, and we have been hearing for years now that this is because of CO2 in the atmosphere. If we don't get a handle on this, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And so you you can understand why people would look around and say, well, we got to do something. Yeah. We can't have California burned down. Are, are yeah. what we're, is what we're experiencing the result of increased CO2 in our atmosphere? In terms of the, uh, the wildfires? That the wildfires and the droughts absolutely and all not. that's going on? Absolutely not. It's not. No. Um, yeah, I'll just I'll run you a little bit of basic history here again, basic uh, you know historical data. Um, the number of wildfires and the acreage burned by them were far higher in the 1920s and 30s than they have been in the last decade. In fact, uh, in the 1920s and 30s, they tended to run five, six, seven, ten times as much as in the last decade, even in the last few years with the, uh, the tremendous fires that we've faced. Uh, we we uh, distribute a, uh, a study called Fix America's Forests. People can get that from our online store, cornwallalliance.org. Uh, Fix America's Forests is by a couple of experts in this field, and they point out the real reason for the devastating wildfires that California, Oregon, Washington, other parts in the West have experienced in the last decade or so has nothing to do with uh, local temperatures. It has nothing to do with droughts or anything like that. It has everything to do with bad forest management. Mm -hmm. And that bad forest management is driven by environmentalist thinking that says nature is best untouched by human hands. Therefore, we don't go in and cull out dead trees. We don't go in and, and take out undergrowth. And so all that builds up into enormous fuel. And once a fire does get started, and by the way, quite a few of the fires in California over the past year were arson uh, involved. But once a fire does get started, now it's got lots of fuel, so it's going to burn more fiercely. It's going to travel more rapidly than otherwise it would. So the solution is not to try to fight climate change to slow down wildfires. It's to do better forest management. Dr. Calvin Beisner is joining us this afternoon on Southern California Live. We're talking about uh, the world coming together to say we must address an existential crisis. And we need to hear the uh, the other side of the story, people who are saying, wait just a second. It may be that the... Um, that the cure is is uh, more dangerous than the disease. We're going to continue the conversation. If you have questions, you're welcome to join us. 888-52-TALKS is our number. 888-528-2557. As we talk about climate change and how we should think about that as Christians. We'll continue here on KKLA and KPRZ, Southern California Live. Back in a minute. Southern California Live, 
On KKLA and KPRZ, I'm Bob Lapine. We're talking about climate change. We're talking about who did start the fire and the fires that are going on in California. We're talking about climate change. Dr. Calvin Beisner is joining us from the Cornwall Alliance. And let me just encourage you, if you've not been to their website, it is a rich resource for you. Go to cornwallalliance.org and find out what's there but but I have to, Dr. Beisner, I have to start here in this segment by, by just thinking about um, Galileo. You know, I, I look at, at the dissenting views that, that you are representing when it comes to cli- climate uh, change. We're, we're, in a, we're in a world where, where it has become the accepted norm that yes we're experiencing climate change it's man-made unless we do something it's an existential threat so along comes an evangelical who says no it's not bad and people think oh this is this is nothing different than flat earth this is nothing different than <laughs> i mean you've heard this kind of stuff leveled at you through the years right oh sure yeah uh, this is called if you can't uh, if you can't attack the argument you attack the person <laughs> So how can we how can we know that we're not just simply sitting here saying, well, you know, we we read the Bible and and so we believe this and and we're sticking our fingers in our ears and and just not listening to what the educated people are telling us is true. Well, frankly, it's it's not easy because it really requires a great deal of study. Um, in my case, I've read oh uh, something like about sixty five books on the science of climate change and many thousands of articles, including a couple of hundred refereed journal articles. Uh, I've read about 35 books on the economics of climate and energy policy and thousands of articles in those fields. And, you know, you you just have to really study. And so it's not easy. Uh, We do try to sort of summarize a lot of what we learn from that kind of thing on the website of the Cornwall Alliance. And and it's not all written by me. Um, There are uh, major papers there that are written by uh, world-class climate scientists like Dr. Roy Spencer of the University of Alabama. He's NASA award-winning climate scientist. He's uh, he and his partner, Dr. John Christie, there are in charge of NASA's satellite global global temperature monitoring system. Uh, or Dr. David Legates, who's just now retiring after a long career as a climatology professor at the University of Delaware. Uh, and there are others who are who are involved with us in various different ways. Um, so we have a number of uh, major papers on our website. Uh, that are written by people like this, uh, such as uh, about seven years ago now, it is, we published a paper called A Call to Truth, Prudence, and Protection of the Poor, The Case Against Harmful Climate Policies Gets Stronger. That was by two uh, scholars, one Dr. David Gates, the climatologist, and another Dr. Uh, Cornelis Van Kooten, who is a professor of environmental economics and the chair of the Canada, the Canada Chair in Climate Science at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. Uh, and this, you know, sets forth the science as well as the economics in a way that ordinary people can understand, but it's good, solid stuff. So, you know, frankly, there is no easy answer to this. Uh, you know, st- 
study to show thyself approved, mm. a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, that is, the scriptures, but also, frankly, study to show yourself approved on whatever it is you're going to talk about. Uh, so, you know, we, we have to really understand the arguments. And as I said earlier, it's really not a, a, a situation where we are that far outside the mainstream. It's just that what gets portrayed as the mainstream by politicians and the mainstream media is frankly not the mainstream of scientists. You can read, for example, all 4,000, or let's see, 3,000. 499 pages of the uh, of the latest uh, assessment report from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. There's a there's actually a lot of pretty good science in there, quite good science. You can read the whole thing. You will never find the word crisis. You'll never find the word catastrophic. You'll never find the phrase existential threat. None of that is there. The closest you come to that sort of thing is in what's called the summary for policymakers, but that's not written by the scientists. That's written by government bureaucrat appointees to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Notice it is called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and that tends to exaggerate pretty badly what's in the actual scientific reports. And then, even worse, are press releases that come out, for example, from the U.N. Secretary General uh, Guterres, saying that this latest report shows this is code red for humanity. You'll find that language anywhere, either in the assessment report or in the summary for policymakers. So, you know, what we're dealing with is extreme exaggeration by environmental activists and by politicians who have other motives, other reasons for all of this. There are huge, huge financial matters at stake, especially for the renewable energy industry, wind and solar particularly, uh, in trying to get people to stop using the most abundant, the most reliable, the most affordable fuels that we have, which are fossil fuels, uh, and and they want us to turn to wind and soil, which are intermittent and therefore not reliable. They are much more expensive after you include in the price of getting them all the subsidies that go to them. And they, they simply cannot provide the vast amounts of 24-7, 365, instant on demand, every second of the day, uh, whenever you want it, electricity that is essential to uh, to a healthy uh, and a prosperous uh, and a vigorous life. And what's dropped out of that whole conversation has been something that that has become much safer over the years, and yet nobody's talking about it anymore. Where's nuclear in all of this? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you, you've got uh, somebody like Paul Ehrlich, saying we shouldn't have nuclear energy because it's so inexpensive that it's like putting a, a gun in the, you know, the hand of a little child. That's crazy. Now, nuclear energy could indeed be very, very inexpensive if it were not just absurdly over-regulated because of, of uh, unfounded fears. I mean, the notion that a nuclear power plant could explode in a nuclear explosion, I mean, that, that's physically impossible, for example. 
Uh, and by the way, nobody died from radiation exposure at Fukushima, and only about 38 people total were killed by anything radiation-related in uh, in the uh, in Chernobyl. Uh, oh, yeah, Chernobyl uh, uh, accident, which, by the way, was driven by two two engineers playing chicken, trying to see how how close they could come to a meltdown without actually causing it. They were both drunk at the time. And it was a reactor design that would never have been used in the West. Uh, but, no, nuclear energy has the greatest safety record of all the different energy systems that we use. And uh, properly done, it's uh, extremely safe, it can be very inexpensive, and it is certainly, uh, as far as providing for electricity anyway, uh, going, to, uh, going to displace coal and natural gas in the long run, partly because there are much better things to do, especially with natural gas, than to burn it up to make electricity. Uh, we can do all kinds of other things with it. Uh, nuclear energy is, is tremendous. And the sad thing is that most uh, there's some change going on on that. I mean, even James Hansen, uh, former NASA uh, scientist, uh, who has been one of the most outspoken uh, climate alarmists ever since the mid-1980s, even James Hansen now says, oh, we need to turn to nuclear if we really want to fight global warming. Well, I don't happen to want to fight global warming, but I'm all for turning to a lot more nuclear. Dr. Calvin Beisner joining us this afternoon as we talk about climate change. And here's something that just doesn't get heard. And and that's part of the frustration we're dealing with because it has become such a one-note symphony that I I think we have a generation that is emerging that, uh, that has simply been propagandized into believing things that are are not true. And and that's the reason for this conversation. So I, I want to read to you something, and we'll talk about this after the break, but the, the on Wikipedia it says about California that uh, during the next few decades, California, in California, climate change is likely to further reduce water availability, increase wildfire risk, decrease agricultural productivity, and threaten coastal ecosystems. The state will also be impacted economically due to the rising cost of providing water to its residents, along with revenue and job loss in the agricultural sector. So I'll have you respond to that after we take this time out. Dr. Calvin Beisner from the Cornwall Alliance is our guest, and we'll continue. This is Southern California Live on KKLA and KPRZ. Southern California Live on KKLA and KPRZ. I'm Bob Lapine. We're talking this afternoon with Dr. Calvin Beisner from the Cornwall Alliance Website is cornwallalliance.org, and I would encourage you to check it out and pass it along so that you can at least be aware that there there's not a lockstep view when it comes to issues related to earth stewardship. I, I read this quote from Wikipedia about drought conditions, about uh, threats to the coastal ecosystem, decreased agricultural productivity. I mean, this is something in California we've been experiencing and living with for a decade now. Um, and and you can look around and see what's going on with agriculture and drought and think, well, if this is, if this is climate change, then we've got to do something or 
we're not going to i mean the 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 bread basket in the middle of california is going to dry up and and we'll be out of avocados before long dr beisner are are we experiencing drought conditions because of global warming just checking if we've got uh i think we got to turn the line up there we go we got you back on we we lost you there for a second you're here Okay. Um, yeah, several different ways I can go about this. The, the first one is is just to to say that climate is defined as long term weather, generally thought of as a minimum of averaged over a period of thirty years. Whatever happens in the space of a decade is not climate; it's weather, and weather changes and it goes up and down. And uh, there are, in fact, plenty of, of uh, there's plenty of evidence that California has suffered much longer and more intense droughts in the distant past than it has suffered in the past decade or two. And so uh, you, you cannot blame the current drought situations there on climate change partly because 10 years isn't climate and partly because we've had similar conditions in the past long before any of the recent global warming. And so that's the first part of the answer. Second part of my answer is going to be uh, to recommend a book, and it's a fascinating book. It's by Dr. John R. Christie, who is a distinguished professor of earth and atmospheric science at the University of Alabama, but he grew up in Fresno. And recently, he published a book called, Is It Getting Hotter in Fresno or Not? You can get this on Amazon. Uh, John Christie, Is It Getting Hotter in Fresno? And <laughs> this is a fascinating book. Um, and the, the, there are parts of it that, frankly, are going to, uh, to to bore people because he gets way deep into the weeds of how do you establish long-term quality temperature data for any given location? And it's an extremely difficult thing to do. I mean, I, I read through this and was just astounded by how difficult it is. But once you've done all the work, and he describes exactly how he did it for Fresno, stretching back to 1895, once you've done all the work for Fresno anyway, which is right there in the middle of you know California, he finds out there's been no increase in average uh, day or nighttime temperatures in Fresno over the period. Uh, I'm sorry, average low or high temperatures. Uh, there has been an increase in nighttime lows, but that's entirely because urban areas absorb heat from the sun during the daytime more than do rural uh, undeveloped areas, and then they, they release that heat during the night. So that's why nighttime temperatures have risen, but daytime temperatures have not. And that means that there has not been an increase in the actual uh, uh, surrounding temperature for that area. This will surprise an awful lot of people, but by golly, this is the best work that's ever been done on that subject for that part of the world. So is it getting hotter in Fresno or not? Great book on Amazon.com. 
you know, the, the, the truth is that even the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change tells us that thus far there has been no increase in the frequency or the intensity of any extreme weather events, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, droughts, wildfires, uh, around the world during the period of allegedly primarily man-made global warming, which basically stretches back to around about 1960. Um, now, computer models tell us that uh, we should expect that, uh, that we would have an increase in the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events. But the computer models themselves are are based on a lot of assumptions, primarily about CO2 driving warming more than it does. It's most likely that, that changes in the sun and ocean currents and, and the like are much more uh, powerful drivers of, of uh, global temperature than CO2. But the models uh, are essentially hypothesis, and you test hypothesis by comparing it with real-world observations. And those models, on average, exaggerate the warming effect of carbon dioxide by, well, the fifth-generation models exaggerated by about two to three times the uh, observed actual results. The sixth-generation models, the ones that are used for the current IPCC assessment report, are even worse. They exaggerate by anywhere from three to five times uh, the observed warming. So, you know, that means the, the models uh, give us no rational basis for any predictions of future temperature and therefore no rational basis for any kind of policy related to it. And that shouldn't surprise anybody who follows the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change because back in 2001, in its third assessment report, it very explicitly said but because the climate system is a nonlinear, coupled, fluid, dynamic, chaotic system, it is impossible, impossible, that's its word, right, for us to predict future temperature on a global uh, climate scale. I, we've been talking science throughout this whole hour, and I want, in the few minutes we have left, I, I want to shift our focus. Because as I read my Bible, I read the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and from him and through him and Amen. by him are all things created and sustained. Uh, it, there, There is a clash of worldviews that is at work here that that really is at the heart of all of this, isn't there? There certainly is, and I know we have just about three minutes left here, uh, so I'll try to be real quick here. Um, you know... The scriptures tell us that a God, that an infinitely wise, infinitely uh, powerful, infinitely faithful God created the earth, and when he finished making it, he said, behold, it was very good. Now, one of our climate scientists, Dr. Roy Spencer, I mentioned him earlier, uh, got thinking about that once, and he, th- he thought, how can it be? that if this climate system is very good, a change in atmospheric chemistry to be described as carbon dioxide going from from three thousandths of one percent to, I'm sorry, from thirty thousandths of one percent to forty thousandths of one percent is going to cause catastrophic warming. 
He said, that just doesn't make sense. Uh, and it certainly isn't consistent with thinking that God wisely designed this whole thing. That drove him to do research using the satellites that NASA has up in the sky into how clouds respond to a bit of warming at the surface of the Earth. All the computer models say that if you warm the surface a bit, clouds will change to warm it even more. His research with the satellites proved it was the opposite, that if you warm it, the clouds change to diminish the warming. That sets all the models wrong. In other words, God made our climate system to be robust, resilient, and self-correcting, and that is exactly what we find when we do the hard empirical work of observing the actual world around us, rather than just depending on computer models, which are only hypothesis, not reality. The, uh, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist Richard Feynman described the key to science this way. When you want to understand how the world works, first you make a guess, then you make predictions based on the guess, then you make observations and you compare them with the predictions. And if the observations contradict the predictions, your guess is wrong. And it doesn't matter how intelligent you are or how many people agree with you or how beautiful your guess is, that's it. That's the key to science. Well, the climate models are wrong. We know that. Even the IPCC people know that. That means their guess is also wrong. And we need to get back to solid science, not junk science. Well, I am grateful for the work that you do. I'm grateful for the scholars who are involved with the Cornwall Alliance. I hope our listeners will check out the website, cornwallalliance.org, and find out more about the good work you're doing. Grateful you'd take some time with us this afternoon, and uh, uh, appreciate it. Hope we can stay connected. Hope it's not 30 years between now and the next time, Cal. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and God bless. Yes. We're wrapping things up here in the first hour. We will continue with more on Southern California Live. This is Bob Lapine. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.